Tonight's reading is Luke chapter 22, verse, verse 66, to chapter 23, verse 25, and you'll find it starts on page 1058 of your church Bible. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be, a Messiah, to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Her Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, 
They insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pepper. Everyone, let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we thank you for this account of Luke, uh, Lord, that we might know the certainty of the things that we were taught about our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, still our hearts uh, when they're fearful. Lord, I pray that you would um, yeah, become our minds, Lord, uh, when we're worried that maybe this Jesus isn't all he's cracked up to be. And Lord, instead, you would light a fire amongst us that we, Lord, might be so certain that you have made this Jesus Lord and Messiah, Lord, that he is our King. And Lord, we would count it a privilege and honour, a glorious and wonderful privilege to be your children uh, in this world, which is often dark. Bless us, I pray, as we come to your word. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, as we prayed there, this uh, Gospel of Luke is written so that those early believers of Jesus might be certain about the things that they were taught about Jesus. You might be here today and wondering about that yourself for the first time, or you might have experienced things in the last week which have made you wonder. I wonder really whether this is the Lord, the Messiah, the King that I'm supposed to be following. How do you identify a king? You know, there's going to be a coronation soon, isn't there? And I should thought that it would be pretty obvious who the king is. There will be oils and bishops and clothing and chapels. And, you know, if you were to ask an alien who suddenly landed, who here do you think the king is? They're probably going to say the bloke with the big ears uh, on the... Uh, it was slightly dismissive, wasn't it? So I have big ears. But it's pretty obvious, isn't it? How do we know who the king is? How do we know this Jesus? Because I think it's quite hard to tell that Jesus is the king, not just of our nation, but the king of the whole universe and all of time. It's difficult because he doesn't have all the hallmarks. Someone once said to me, well, show me this king. I can't see him. Or you might think, oh, I wish I could feel it. You know, I'm one of his people. Why can't I do sort of amazing miracles? Or why do I, I feel... I don't feel happy and perky all the time like I'm following this king of great joy. Or, or you might think, actually, you know, if you look at God's people, they are a bit of a mess. You know, is this king Jesus, if his people are like this, is he really the king? Like, who is running this show when it comes to the Church of England or all the other church disasters all over the world? Or maybe you're here and you don't know about any of that, but you're reading what we're reading tonight and you're thinking, well, this Jesus is a guy who was, you know, he went to a cross. He's shameful. It's awful. It's filled with weakness. He's treated like a criminal. What do you mean he's the king? If you look at the world as well, you see, you're telling me there's a king of the world. Well, look at it. Absolute mess, isn't it? Luke wants you to be certain of the things that you were taught, and you might be hearing for the first time, that this Jesus 
God made Lord and Messiah. And the effect of that will be on us, I hope tonight, is that we won't just be stars in the night. Don't be a star. I hope that we will be moons in the dark. I'll explain that in a minute. I want us to take a careful look at what Luke presents us here. An ordinary man suffering an extraordinary injustice. Did you see that? The question that is repeated most often in this sort of set of trials is, who is this person? Who are you? Verse 67. Look with me down at that verse. If you are the Messiah, they say, tell us. We don't know if you're this Messiah. Are you? Verse 70. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? Who are you? And chapter 23, verse 3, Pilate asks uh, the Jesus, are you king of the Jews? Who are you? And verse 9 as well. This thing's going on all the time, isn't it? Who are you, actually? And we're supposed to take away that this is the person that God has made, the Lord and Messiah, the king over everyone and everything for all time. And we know that because that's what Jesus says of himself in the opening section from 66 to verse 4. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Messiah means God's anointed one, God's long-promised chosen king. That for thousands of years before this event happened 2,000 years ago, God was promising to his people that a king would come and sort the whole world out. That he would do what all politicians and all rulers and all dictators have failed to do for millennia. He promised a Messiah. Here he is. This is it. In verse 69, they say, look, tell us. And Jesus says, well, look, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would, you would not answer. In other words, he's saying, look, I've told you before I'm the Messiah. You're not actually interested in the answer to that. You're just trying to trip me up so that you've got a charge to send me off to Pilate to be killed. So what does he say of himself? Well, he then says in verse 69, but... I'll tell you this, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. It's a slightly odd phrase, isn't it? All you've got to know is the Son of Man, it was someone, it was a title that was used in the Old Testament that Andrew actually started us off with tonight, that referred to this Messiah, this person that would come and sort everything out. And Jesus repeatedly uses that word, of it, that title of himself. In fact, only just previously, in back, turn back to chapter 21 and have a look at verse 36. Jesus says uh, there, Be always on the watch to his disciples and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. He's saying that there's a day coming when the Son of Man will arrive and judge all peoples from all times. And Jesus is saying, I am that person. You think I'm just a king over you amongst the Romans. I am, but I'm more than that. I'm the son of man, the one that is going to come and judge all people. Can you see the irony of it? He sat there being judged by the council of elders, uh, the chief priests and the teachers of the law who should know their Bible backwards. And they don't understand that they're judging the Son of Man who will one day judge everyone. How do we know that? Because he's going to be sat at the right hand of the mighty God. And we know that, don't we? Because we've seen Jesus rise from the dead. 
He is that judge of all people. The king promised to sort out everything, the Messiah. He's the son of man. And then he keeps going, doesn't he? The the guys questioning him, they work out that if you're saying you're going to sit at the right hand of the mighty God, it means you're claiming to be God as well. And so they say, verse 70, are you then the son of God? And he replied, well, you say that I am. Sort of ironic, isn't it? Because actually that's all Jesus has been saying throughout his life repeatedly doing things that only a God can do. And so in, in, God's, in Jesus' own testimony, he's saying, I am the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, and I am that Son of Man that will one day judge all of you. And then his testimony just peters out, doesn't it? Do you notice that? He almost says nothing after this. And at this point, we're, we've got this... Jesus' own testimony is that he is this king of kings, this judge, this mighty God. And this is the point where C.S. Lewis writes, either Jesus has got to be mad, bad, or he's got to be God. Either he's mad, he's crazy to be talking like that, or he's bad, he's just lying about it, or he is who he says he is, the son of man who will one day be seated at the right hand of the mighty God, judging over all people. And the horror of it is, is we see this king being judged by others. We see this innocent king being condemned by the guilty. And there are four episodes that rub that in. The innocent king judged by the guilty. There are four episodes. First of all, we've got the council, the elders, the teachers of the law and the priests back in 66. And they're sitting over Jesus, aren't they? And they're judging him. Uh, And he presents them totally with the truth, uh, and they accuse him of blasphemy. Which, of course, is horrifically ironic, because blasphemy is when you're claiming to be God. Falsely. But it's not false. It's true. And so the innocent king, who's presented nothing but the truth, is being judged by the guilty who refuse to acknowledge what they can see plainly in what Jesus has done in his life. Their interest in the truth is only to trump up a charge so that Jesus can be sent off for the death penalty. That's why he says that funny thing about, look, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I asked you stuff, you wouldn't know. You're not interested in the truth other than to try and kill me off. Innocent king condemned by the guilty. And then the same when we come to another, we come to another king, don't we? We come to Pilate. He's the Roman governor. He's the occupying forces, that authority. He's got power here. And uh, what does he do? The whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, who's the one person who can probably kill Jesus uh, to order capital punishment. Uh, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Do you see the falsehood? He claims, what does he say? He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. You've got to understand that, right? Here's the administrator who collects the taxes. And look, here's someone who's actually doing the opposite. Except it's not true. When Jesus was asked about taxes about two chapters ago, he says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. They're guilty of falsehood, aren't they? And they repeat simply the truth that Jesus has put forward. And Pilate has the same problem, doesn't he? he? So Pilate asks, look, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. 
Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crown, I find no basis for a charge against this man. He is innocent. But they insisted he stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. So they're trying to say, aren't they, that he's a revolutionary and there's going to be a fight. But it's not true. When he was arrested, someone pulled out a sword and Jesus said, none of that. At no point have there been weapons at any of his meetings or anything like that. It's more lies, isn't it? But the worst thing is, is Pilate's just the same. He says, this guy's innocent, but then on hearing, verse 6, that Jesus uh, is a Galilean, he passes him off to Herod, instead of acquitting Jesus and sending him away free. The innocent king condemned by the guilty. And we get the same thing with Herod. Here's another king of sorts, contrasted with the innocent king. Will he be proven to be innocent? What does Herod do? When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some sort of miracle or sign. You see, for Herod, Jesus is just a sort of curiosity, an item of interest. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. That's slightly worrying, isn't it? There might be a point where Jesus doesn't interact with you. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Will Herod be innocent or will he join in? And then Herod and his soldiers, maybe they were, their pride had been jilted by Jesus' lack of answer. They join in, don't they? They ridiculed and mocked this innocent king of kings. They dressed him in an elegant robe to sort of pretend that he was a king. And they sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends before they had been his enemies. Nice little note, isn't it? How darkness allies with darkness. In what? In the guilty condemning of the innocent king. And then we get our last one with the crowd, don't we? In verses 13 to 16 onwards. And it's just more of a travesty, isn't it? Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found... No basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod. So why aren't you guys releasing him? For he sent him back to us, as you can see, as he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But the whole crowd, here's your new authority, your new kind of bunch of kings. The whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas is a guy who's been thrown into prison for insurrection. He really is inciting the people all over Judea to take up arms. And for murder, he really is guilty. It's terrible, isn't it? The perverse guilt of Pilate to punish anyway, uh, trumped by the crowd asking for a murderer instead of an innocent man. Isn't it terrible that Barabbas means more to these people than the living God, the Messiah who's going to sort all the darkness out? And three times Pilate appeals to them by the end. Verse 22, for the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? Can you hear how it's just rubbed in again and again and again? Jesus lays out the truth about being the son of man and the king. He's shown to be innocent all the way through. And yet... The council, the elders, the teachers of the law, the priests, Pilate, Herod, and the crowd 
are all guilty of condemning this innocent king. The guilty condemn the innocent. This is the son of God. What's his response to that? What is God's response to that injustice? Have some of you ever known injustice like this? I bet you some of you have. What was your response? What's God's response? Well, it's hinted in what happens to Barabbas. With loud shouts, verse 23, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. Do you hear that? It's so interesting, that. Their shouts prevailed. The loudness of their shouting, not their arguments, not the fact that it was a case against Jesus, but just they shouted the loudest. Does that ring true with anything in our culture at the minute? And so what does Pilate do? He decides to grant their demand. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Very interesting that. He surrendered Jesus to their will, not to cross, but to their will. It's rubbing in that these are guilty people, aren't they? Condemning the innocent king. And what's God's response to that? Well, it's hinted in Barabbas. The guilty kill the innocent, but the innocent king gives his life for the guilty. That's what it is, isn't it? In verse 18 onwards, what do we see? Here is a guilty man, verse 19. He's been in, he really has been insurrection. He really has been taking people's lives. He is guilty beyond compare. He's on death row. You know, compare murder with the life of Jesus, healing people, giving people their sight, setting people free, giving them life when they're dead in the tomb. And yet here is a man who takes life and is on death row. The innocence of Jesus, but their shouts prevail. For, and it's not justice, is it, that prevails here. It's their shouts. And so Jesus is surrendered to their will, except it's not really their will at all. It's the will of God that the innocent king would swap places for the guilty murderer on death row. Isn't it great? Do you see Barabbas? He has zero qualification to be rescued, doesn't he? There is nothing to commend him for rescue. He doesn't even know Jesus. The only qualification that he has is that he is on death row. That's it. What a God we have in Jesus, that our God responds in this way. Not standing up, throwing open his arms and making his power known to all by consuming everyone by the fire that goes in front of him. That's what we read about God, the Son of God in in the Old Testament. Instead, he quietly swaps places with the guilty. He goes quietly through the, the proclamation of the truth, which leads to injustice, shame, and death, all to swap places. So this passage is not anti-Semitic in any way. It's not. This is just absolutely nothing to do with the Jews killing Jesus. It's all of us. The crowd is all of us. We're all on death row. And we will all face Jesus as that judge, the Son of Man. Did you, do you recognize this innocent king who dies for guilty people who are on death row like you and I, who are doomed Do you notice how if Barabbas does not have Jesus, he is doomed? That's the point that's made here. 
And the good news is, is that anyone who has this king will be rescued. Do we know how we know that? We can see it in Barabbas, but we can also see it in Acts 2. Do you want to turn with me to Acts 2? You've got to go uh, a number of pages ahead. And in Acts 2, Peter, having witnessed the risen Lord Jesus, stands up in front of the Jews, in front of the teachers of the law, and he preaches to them about Jesus. And he says this in Acts 2, verse 36. Has anyone got a page number? 1094. He says this to exactly the people we've just read. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? But Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The very people who were condemning this innocent king were called upon to repent and believe in Jesus, and they did, and they were saved. Even the people that condemned Jesus to be crucified on that day were forgiven. I doubt you have crucified a Messiah recently, but even we can be forgiven. Look, and this leaves us with a challenge. Are you certain that God has made this Jesus Lord and Messiah? Because if you are, the appropriate response is to repent and believe with great joy. If you are, then the appropriate response is, is we listen to the truth that Jesus tells us. When he speaks, his words are the words of the Son of God, the judge of all people. And so when we come to wrestling with our sin, when we encounter something hard in God's word, whether it's blessing the same-sex marriages or whatever it is, yes, this man, this amazing innocent king, he is the one I want to go with. It also means that we should be like uh, those who repented after this in that we should know that our sin caused this to be needed to happen. My sin meant that Jesus needed to go through this, this Injustice, this shame, this humiliation, this death, the wrath of God. And so how odious my sin, get away from it. And how lovely Jesus, get near him. Flee from sin to Jesus, just like they do in Acts 2. But also, I think for us, this is what gives us confidence to shine like moons in the darkness rather than stars. I love the moon at night is amazing, isn't it? It's so much darkness, and yet the moon illuminates everything, doesn't it, when it's full. Sometimes it does it imperfectly, it only gets half of the sun. But it illuminates everything with all the glory that's reflected from the sun, and the darkness is lit up, isn't it? It's much more potent than a star. It's reflecting the glow of the sun. And so that's what we want to be like in a world that is filled with darkness, that is filled with this kind of injustice, that's filled with this kind of hatred, that's filled with this kind of antithesis and hatred for Jesus. We want to shine like that moon that reflects his glory. We can't, the world can't see him. He's over the horizon. But one day like the sun dawning, the son of man will be here and then it will be clear like daylight. But until then, 
We reflect Jesus' glory to a world in darkness and we shine brightly. And the way we do that is that we hold out the truth like Jesus did, expecting to be called liars, expecting to be, um, uh, what happens here, expecting to be told that we're, we're, we're spreading falsehoods, expecting to be treated like curiosities who are then shamed and ridiculed. We're expecting to be people that are shouted down and are submitted to death because we are reflecting the glory of this king, the innocent king who goes through this for us. And we know that one day he will come again. And when he does, all darkness will be chased away like the shadows of the night. And there will be no more ridicule, injustice, death, or lies. And so when I look at this king, and I look at what Jesus does, it makes me want to stand up for him. And when I experience people calling me a liar and ridiculing me and condemning me with their loud shouting and telling me that I ought to die, it makes me think, yes, I stand with Jesus reflecting his glory and I know that he is the king because I can see it here and I'm just going to reflect that straight back to that darkness. That's my king. And so the question for us is, to talk about over coffee, is how good are we at proclaiming the truth, at taking the injustice, at being told we're liars, at being told uh, that we are being made ridicule and made fun of, and of even being put to death? Like those guys in Congo we were praying for. Where can you see that happening in our church family that we can thank God for? And how can we do that more? by reflecting this, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you that you're a God, Lord, who doesn't come with consuming fire before you to consume all the guilt of mankind, but Lord, instead you come as the Son of Man, humble even to this injustice and this shame, so that you might swap places with us. Lord, what a privilege. We long for you to come again as the Son of Man, clear as daylight, shaking away, chasing away all darkness. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us confidence in our hearts that, Jesus, you are the one that the God has made Lord and Messiah. And, Lord, that we can endure these things that make us doubt that with great joy and excitement that your day is coming. Come soon, Lord. Amen.